Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Welcome back, dear listeners, to part two of my conversation with William Douglas Horden. If you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one in the previous episode. Thank you for joining us again. Enjoy. Your chapter, Flower and Song, about the kind of paradox of holding the perfection of life, of everything, right? And the fact that it's also dying, which is also the paradox of life is hard. Right. So so drink the orange juice, squeeze every drop out of the orange, right? And of course, the wisdom of flower and song, as you write in the chapter, is that it's not only the recognition of this paradox, but then how do we treat each moment of life knowing that it is both perfect and passing or dying, right? And we do that by, you know, <laughs> to go with the metaphor, by squeezing the juice, by treating every moment as its own ecstatic fulfillment right. that we get to be a part of. Right. And to try to hold both of those emotions and thoughts at the same time, to hold the perfection and the awe and the gratitude at the perfection and the grief at the passing of everything, including my own passing, and to be able to hold both of those things uh, in the same uh, mind space, in the same moment mm -hmm. of awareness, it kind of creates an instant nostalgia. It creates the bittersweet sense of the beauty of life and of the horror of life. Mm. And these two things are not antithetical. They are just two sides of the same coin. And it's like being afraid of the dark, you know? If you stumble around in the dark long enough, you go out and you live in the woods for a couple of years and uh, there's no light around and you have to walk around in the dark. After a while, you're not afraid of the dark anymore. Mm. You realize all the other things are running away from you. You know, they're afraid of you. You're actually the meanest, biggest predator on the planet. <laughs> that we are. You know, it's like there is that infant inside of us that in the early socialization, if you remember, you were given these pieces of paper 
And on it, there were several uh, objects. It would ask you, what's wrong with this picture? I was always so good at those. Yeah, and it's like, what, 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 what of these things doesn't fit, you know? Mm-hmm. There's like a fireman and a fire hydrant and a fire truck and an ice cream cone or something, right? You know, and you... That's so funny. I thought ice cream truck. Uh, we did a mind yeah, melt there. See? Very cool. Yeah, very cool. And you go, well, uh, they all fit, you know. <laughs> you know, right? But no, no, the ice cream cone doesn't fit. It doesn't go together. Or uh, what's wrong with this picture? See, and then now you think, why weren't they putting a piece of paper in front of me and asking me what's right with this picture? Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's from the very get go that we are to develop the critical mind. And God knows, you know, we could use uh, more critical thinking uh, in some avenues of life, but um, but not as the foundation. It's an old saying, you know, that um, uh, thinking is a good servant, but a bad master. Indeed. And, yeah. and, and it's... Uh, and, and we could say the same thing about feeling, and, and uh, we could say the same thing about intuition, and we could say the same thing about sensation. Those are Jung's four functions. That that all of them are are good uh, servants. They're all good tools, but they they have to be subservient to something um, more primitive and uh, more um, primal. Gurdjieff, who was one of the great, last great masters, you know, that, 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 that walked around on the planet and uh, made, in, in public, made himself known, said that um, the body is a carriage and the horses are the emotions and the driver is the intellect. And the, the, the driver really has to make sure that the wheels are greased and you know, sometimes has to uh, prod the horses into movement and other times has to pull them back and um, and uh, has to decide on what is the best road to take to the destination. But, of course, Gurdjieff being, you know, part Sufi, says, but it's the owner of the carriage who's traveling in the carriage it's the true self that determines the destination and that picks out the horses and picks out the driver and, you know, and uh, honors the, the carriage and depends on the carriage. But it's the true self that's riding. And, and so this, this is like Jung saying, well, you have to develop the self archetype and not, you know, not, not, uh, not de- depend on the ego uh, to be able to cope with the emotions uh, uh, other than just being tossed about and, uh, randomly. So a, a lot of this um, uh, wisdom teachings is, is about trying to bring the infant up myself. <laughs> I'm having to parent myself. And uh, without any resentment towards any of the uh, loved ones who did their very best, and they were, uh, they went through the same cultural training and conditioning, 
And uh, everybody, everybody, I think everybody's doing their best, except for the people that are just plain mean. But um, but how do I how do I reduce my sense of of infancy? Um, for instance, any anybody who lives uh, in a, in a house for any period of time with other people, but even with yourself, knows that once you're in your own home, you suddenly become three years old. <laughs> Guilty. Yes, and everybody's acting out their three-year-old mindset and emotions and space and territory and. Uh, mm sense of uh, being uh, honored or respected or not so and uh, all of these things you know and you because it's safe it's a safe place and as soon as we kind of go oh okay that's really that's what i'm trying to i'm trying to um uh, build i'm trying you know i'm trying to create this site of enlightenment where it's it's safe and I can I can reduce the sense of that personality, social personality and the ego identity that's been developed for that purpose of dealing with the world and and try to keep reducing back further and further, further and further um, into um, that mind before thinking, uh, before um before I, you know, one of the first things that my teacher did when I when I met him uh, was he said, "I want you to go a month without saying the words I or me." Hmm. And he says, "You know, and I'm not just talking about out loud. I'm talking about internal too. You know, I'd like to see you get by for a month without using those words or those thoughts of I or me." Okay, you know. So in some places we call that decentering. I'm trying to decenter myself from the narrative that I'm constructing, and or and ultimately deconstructing. You know, I'm a blade of grass in a vast field of grass. Oh, there, that feels like home. <laughs> uh, mm. even, I, even I can't figure out which blade of grass I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just a big field of grass. And, uh, okay, okay. But I, but I belong. I belong with, it's like all the cells in my body, you know. They don't go, you know, my, well, these cells in my arm didn't go, well, I'm going to go off and start a garage band <laughs> you know, and leave. No, no, it has a job to do, you know, it has a function. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, in that sense that we're like cells in, in, in this great body. And uh, our soul is similarly uh, uh, part of the vast uh, one soul, the world soul. And uh, that's the, that anonymity, that being able to, 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 to fall back into um, the ocean of awareness where all the drops of water are fused together into a single um, being. Again, my teacher used to say, um, upon hearing the words, one mind, a person ought to awaken instantly. And 
you know, in, in the wisdom traditions, it really is that simple. Or, you know, I'm, I'm drowning. I'm, 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 I can't get back to the surface of the water, and I'm gulping water, and I'm drowning, and I realize I'm dying, and I'm thrashing about, and I'm panicking, and I'm, I'm trying to scream underwater, and I can't even scream, and I wake up in bed, and I'm safe, and I'm warm, but I'm sweating, and my heart is beating fast. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's why they, that's why Buddha means awakened. You know that it's just waking up from this uh, from this dream of separateness that mm-hmm. uh, we that we've been taught to think that we are separate beings. And oddly enough, it's that duality that I'm a subject and everything else is an object that allows me to desecrate other people and nature and and spirit itself. So non-duality simply means break down the wall of subject-object and uh, fuse fuse the subject and the object together as simple non-duality. Piece of cake. Yeah. Sure. And then and then make a sandwich. And then make a sandwich. Yeah. So two things that I'm sitting with. One is the words discernment versus division have just been swimming in my mind this whole time that you've been speaking. Like there's a difference. There's discernment. And then there's division, which is about slicing and dicing and cutting off like that this part does not belong, right? Like what's wrong with this picture is a practice of division rather than a practice of, well, it's also a practice of discernment, but but it has the effect of saying there's something wrong here, right? And I feel like, yeah, so I'm sitting with that and and then I'm also sitting with, I feel like I I walk with a certain sense of that oneness, right? Like I walk with a certain sense of myself as not, not being just myself. And yet here I am, this person living a life that is finite and I have a personality and, and all of the things that come with that. Um, but I can also get deluded by that, right? Like it's so convincing, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting, if I close my eyes and I just feel my body very deeply, I realize that I actually can't tell where my physical body ends and the air around it or the world around it begins. Because strictly speaking, it doesn't end or begin. And yet when I open my eyes, you know, this is my hand. These are my fingers. I, I touch the table and it is, it feels distinctly different than my, you know, like, so there's, and that this world of form is so convincing and it becomes even more convincing. I think, well, it becomes convincing when I bump up against other things, right? When my hand bumps up against the table or when I bump up against other people in the world, or I bump up against my own traumas, my own memories, my own small, contracted, itchy places in myself. And, uh, and then I forget, I forget. 
And I think, you know, for me, the practice is so much in realizing that when I'm just making, when I'm bumping up against, I'm making a sandwich that I'm still not separate. Right. Or that when I'm bumping up against the fear of scarcity or the fear of violence, the fear of loss, right? Right. When things feel so like, like loss (laughs) and, and violence, that's a real edge where it's so hard to say, well, everything is one. Well, yeah, but people are dying. People are drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get to safety. Right. And people are homeless right, right now in sub-zero temperatures and freezing to death in Buffalo under snow. You know, it's like... <sighs> there's, I, there is, um, there's tension there for me. Right. No, what kind of, uh, what kind of compassion would it be if we didn't get angry? If we, if we didn't uh, grieve for other people's suffering? This, this is, uh, I think this is a great source of confusion for, for anybody who has a heart, is just how can people turn away from one another and um, and uh, part of that is that feeling of scarcity that there isn't enough, and that goes back, you know, to tr- tribal life, you know, a million years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, where family groups would be in a cave and they would have a certain amount of physical space around them that they could harvest food of uh, some sort. And then another family group try to move in or share that space. And immediately the, the threat is that there's not going to be enough. And so much of this goes back to a very instinctual level that now we're fully capable of, of producing enough food and, and energy for everybody. We know that. It's, it's not... Um, it's not a question of the technology, it's a question of the will. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we know that um, we have shortcomings as a civilization. Um, and from my perspective, what we look at is the inevitable. That we, um, the futurist thinking says, okay, what is the outcome, you know? What is the inevitable outcome? And now work backwards from there. And so I think that, uh, first of all, a green planet, a green civilization is, is inevitable. And you say, well, if, if it means that civilization collapses or if, or if civilization learns and, and creates a harmonious balance with nature, one way or the other, the, 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 it is inevitable. The question a, is, is, is how we fit into that. It's how, how we, we as right, a species, right, exist right, in right. that It's society. how we get yeah. there, but it's inevitable. And if we keep struggling against it, we, again, we, we create problems for ourselves that are unnecessary. A borderless world, you know, and uh, things like that. When, when my teacher, Master Kai, was... Retired, he 
uh, moved to uh, Phoenix, and he took up the, the cause of world citizenship. Mm-hmm. And uh, he promoted this uh, to an nth, nth degree and even had world citizenship identification cards made and things like that, you know, and trying to really get people to think that there was an alternative to this kind of um, separation and uh, territoriality that's um, maybe right now we can see it, of course, in the yeah. Ukraine, that, that, that what it does is... Um, creates monsters out of human beings. Well, and we can see it too on the on the border between our two countries, Mexico and, and the United yeah, States as well. It's, and it's very it becomes, difficult. It becomes more and more of an issue as more and more people are having to migrate and leave their their place for No, we have refugees walking, you know, walking yeah. through yeah you know, through Mexico, through our town. Um, to go back to that issue, though, that you were talking about with, uh, with the separation and the, uh, you know, and the human body and separate and all that, um, I think that one thing that, that, uh, that helps on a perceptual level, um, well, first of all, about discernment, um, the way that my teacher taught it was he said that even an enlightened person can tell the difference between hot and cold water. Mm-hmm. Yes. So even somebody that's operating from a non-dualistic perspective can put their toe in the bathtub and knows whether the water is hot or cold. And so there is there is that level of what you were calling the eminent wisdom um, but on the on the deeper level, what I think what is foundational to perception is that uh, from a very early age, you inter- intuitively recognize that you have an invisible half, mm. and you never even put it into those words necessarily. But you know that you have a visible half, and everybody's kind of responding to that. But some people seem to be responding to your invisible half say, grandparents, for example, somebody, you know, they, they, they see something, they treat you in a, in a way that goes beyond the way that other people are treating your appearance. But in just you just simply know that you have an invisible half and a visible half. And this is foundational to animistic thought and uh, perception of, of a worldview. So, um, because if I have an invisible half, and then it's uh, highly improbable that I'm the only thing in the world that has an invisible half. And if other things have an invisible half, then it's probably true that everything has an invisible half. And so that's why, you know, we have stories about people going out and asking the flower for permission to take a leaf for some tea or... um, going and asking the stone if I can, uh, or asking the mountain if I can remove the stone to to carve it, um, because I'm addressing the invisible half of the, of the form, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. And um, I, th- I think that 
the younger we are, the more aware we are of that. And then we begin the socialization process, and that kind of covers it over. And the Tarahumara have a saying for that. They say uh, um, uh, civilized people, modern people, see, civilized in quotes, um, have cobwebs over their eyes. Hmm. And so it's not that they can't see the world, but they see it through cobwebs. Through spider webs, they don't see it clearly. And then, as we get older, we begin to lose some of the drive for success or um, acknowledgement or any of those kinds of things that were driving us a little bit. Uh, I want to prove myself to the world, or I'd like to prove myself to myself. And. Uh, and we become more and more attuned again, I think, to the invisible half. But I think I, I do want to return to that one thing that you said, which I think was very profound, that I always feel like a failure. And I would, I would throw out the idea that all there is is failure. And I've written numerous books and not one of them would I view as successful because I feel like I could always have done more or done better. I have a wonderful relationship with my daughter, but of course I feel like yeah, I, I could have done better or I could have done more. Or I could have, you know, I'm, I'm always going to see the shortcomings my own shortcomings, and not in the sense of tearing myself down, but in the sense of always trying to do a little bit better the next moment. And it not being anything having to do with something like regret or, or, or something like that necessarily, but rather with the impetus to make the next moment um, a fuller realization of my potential. And so any time that I begin to think of success, I think that I, I'm setting myself up for, um, for uh, confusion and, uh, and downfall. And that I, I actually think that it's more beneficial to look at everything as a failure and, uh, and, and say, okay, great. Now, uh, um, how does that um, translate? into further uh, action or uh, what I would like to think of as ongoing revelation, you know, that every moment should bring me uh, another, uh, a fuller realization of um, the whole thing, you know, it, the, the that, as they say, of suchness, and, um, and, and allow myself to stop holding back from uh, from expressing or experiencing uh, potential. Yeah, I um, okay, so I did a little research like I do into this concept of failure. Cool. And um, yeah, and what I found cursorily, this is not like deep, research this was like me hanging out with google for like 20 minutes <laughs> okay so <laughs> expectations 
you know, gauged. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this this what do we mean when we when we say failure? You know, what I what I learned is that, you know, the ancient Greeks, uh, Buddha, Lao Tzu had this concept of failure kind of baked in that said, like, yeah, we're imperfect people. Like, of course, we fail. And just like you're saying, failure is like, you know, or as my grandmother would say, another fucking learning opportunity. Mm. Um, <laughs> and um, right. and so there's there's a different um, it's like a different it's a different conception. And that and, and part of my research also showed that, you know, in the Roman Empire and also in modern the modern empire, uh, failure became connected with this concept of success, where if you weren't successful based on, you know, wealth and power and military might, then you were a failure. And it meant that there was something wrong with you, Right. that you were inherently, you know, faulty, inferior, rather than Inferior, exactly. And so there's this attachment that we have in modern times of inferiority to this concept of failure. So when I say now in 2022, oh, I feel like a failure, um, it, it, it's like it, it, it takes me out at the knees. It ta it's like it erases, it seeks to erase my entire existence. Like, why should I, how dare I even exist, right? right. If I'm a failure. And so what I was, what I have been recognizing is how that concept, even just the concept of failure, like I've really been thinking about colonization, right? And mm -hmm. the inner, what I call the inner fascist in the book, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. how these, this, the colonize, how colonization gets into our mind and then, uh, and, and then enslaves us to use that loaded term sure. from within, right? Um, and then we also, we also then perpetuate, uh, enslavement in various ways and violence in various ways externally from within that orientation. And so realizing that the, that the way that we think about failure in this modern context is like a tool of control of, of self-control, not in the, not in the sense of like, in the, in the good sense of self-control, right? It's self-control mm. in the sense of I'm keeping myself small. I'm keeping myself, um, I'm cutting myself down and I'm betraying and devaluing my own unique genius. Well, you're becoming and your own oppressor. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, for me, a big part of that is I'm never doing enough. And this week, since the holiday has ended, we're recording this um, right after Christmas, um, I've been sitting in quiet, like not allowing myself to, to distract myself and fill the time, but also not forcing myself to work or to be productive, to create something, but allowing myself the time and the space to just exist and then feeling into the, the tension of that, like letting myself feel like, Oh, this is uncomfortable. This is not how it, like I should be producing something or I'm being a failure right now. And it, I have found that it has created uh, a quiet in me just to, just to actually, rather than, rather than trying to run away from that feeling of, of being a failure to like actually be like, okay, I'm going to sit at the table with you. 
And it's like, it suddenly it's, it doesn't have the talons that it had a week ago. Right. You know, I think we've, we've talked before about uh, Maslow and, um, you know, he's, he's the one that made the pyramid of yep. yeah. uh, self-actualization and things like that. And somebody once asked him, um, you know, in conversation, how do you recognize a self-actualized person when you meet them? What a great question, no? And, uh, and Maslow said, I look for two things. A non-hostile sense of humor and the ability to engage in purposeless activity. Like, like putting your feet in the dirt and like feeling putting your feet in the, the tickle dirt. of the, right. the grass. Yeah. And then staying with it. You know? Yes, rather and, than building a whole farm life, <laughs> right. just letting it be the pleasure of the moment. Well, how do we honor contentment? Hmm. How do we recognize contentment? How do I even know that I'm content? In Taoism, they say, you know, the, the object of life is contentment. But, but, uh, but uh, that's not enough. Because then you have to become content with contentment. Mm. Because most of us will look like, oh, I'm content. Now I'll, make, now, now I'll go do something. Now I'm, I've, I've accomplished contentment. Now I'm off to something else. But how do I be content with contentment? You know, the, the idea of progress is, is very detrimental to the human nature. And, um, you know, to, th to think of living in a village and um, doing the same thing that the other generation did and having the next generation do what this generation does and everybody focusing on relationships and well-being and mutual encouragement and support and uh, just living a happy, good life mm. and not, not worrying about getting to the moon or... Um, or Mars. Uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever technology is supposedly... Um, advantageous or leading us someplace is at least worth considering. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, these are what we call thought problems. I, I try to use my imagination just to try to find the place inside of myself where those things are true. Yes. I don't necessarily have to pretend that somehow it's supposed to be true outside at the moment. But if I can, if I, for, let me give you another example, Megan. If I can picture myself as a statue on an asteroid flying through space, you know, and it's that simple. But if I can imagine myself there and picture it and try to feel it as much as I can, say, and to try to have that experience internally, it's, it's, very, it's very freeing. It's very liberating. Yes. And I, it goes back to what you were saying in meditation where you, you don't feel the edges of your body. And, um, you know, what, what, what uh, a lot of the spiritual practice is about is trying to find the unconditioned 
original awareness. It was non-differentiated, and uh, and part of the you know, part of the one. Undifferentiated from the one, and um, so many uh, many aspects of what we do in in trying to um, return to the one and to that awareness is to recognize what's called the imaginal. And I know you're you're a real student of this as well, and. Um, what you were talking about, the atoms and the electrons in the physical environment, you know, you, we know that we look around us at this moment and what we are seeing is subatomic particles. We're seeing clusters of subatomic particles and we even look at our own hand and we're looking at clusters of subatomic particles. And how the imagination, and this is the primal imagination, below even below the level of awareness, how the the thing um, can can shape this into a movie and create images that are then perceptive, uh, perceptual, uh, uh, far as the vision, for example, is concerned. And uh, not to mention, really, the, the whole thing with auditory and music and things like that and how, how these things are translated into awareness through the imagination is really the miracle at the, at the basis of, of our experience as human beings. And it's why my teacher would say, and I, I echo this, that's why we come here. <laughs> And that's the juice that we're squeezing out of that orange, is that because without a body, I can be ecstatic and I am part of the one. But coming here, I'm able to um, I'm able to see God from the inside, so to speak. I'm I'm able to uh, be the eyes and the hands of God, and um, further the the work of perfection. Uh, to whatever extent I'm capable of. Yes. I think a lot about dreaming the world into being, right? And how that primal imaginal that you speak of that isn't even in our minds, right? But it is actually in and through those subatomic particles that are dreaming themselves into the form of my hand, this computer, and the whole cosmos, right? Each moment dreaming, imagining what is. And and we're a part of that. Like we're a part of that consciousness. I am a part of that consciousness. I as a, you know, like encased being that is not, you know, actually encased, right? You are a part of that and we are a part of that collectively. And so imagination the engagement with the imaginal, the, the speaking to the flower to ask if I can pick the petal for medicine or the speaking to the mountain is part of that co-creative imaginal process that brings us into the future, that brings the world into being. And we can, we can dream that world where we care about one another respectfully and where we prioritize always the ecstatic joy of the infant we can dream that and we can make it. We can make it by dreaming it, by imagining it. 
right. by calling it. Amen. So we're coming up on time. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know if anything else needs to be said. It went by so quickly. It did. It's amazing that for me it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm like very awake. <laughs> <laughs> so we might just end here. I'm wondering if there's anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with listeners or with me. And if not, that's okay. You know, I've been working uh, with Linda Ruth, as you know, on her reinterpreting the Sabian symbols for the 360 degrees of the zodiac. And that's been very, very meaningful to me. And I've learned just a great deal and, and not knowing anything about astrology and actually feeling like I'm kind of getting a sense of the grand intelligences that speak to us through each of the degrees. And, and again, seeing the animism behind astrology. And that's really been just a wonderful gift. And as you know, yeah. I love to collaborate, so I feel really good yeah. collaborating with her as well. I'm so looking forward to that book. I've been looking forward to that book for a long time, so yeah. hopefully it's coming to fruition soon. It is. It is. Thank you for coming on here and having this discussion with me. It's been a pleasure as always. My joy. Yeah, mine as well. I long for the time when we can sit in the same room together again. Agreed. We took that for granted in 2019, and it's been a long three years, and I hope to be able to, to do that again, even though now I, I live in Massachusetts and I'm not right down the road. I can't just pop over once a week and sit for two hours. <laughs> no, but you have to come over and spend a week and come over every yes. day. I will do that. Right. So, yeah, thank you so much, William, for being here, and I love you dearly, and thank you for getting me to write a book and for <laughs> and for holding my hand through that process. I'm very, very grateful to have found you in my life and to be walking through this life with you. What you said. I agree. Ditto. It's a real honor to know you and to have known you for this past decade and to see the honesty and the authenticity that you bring to every moment and that you do not back down from putting your whole self right out there. And the sincerity of that nature is in too short of supply, and I honor that every time I'm with you. Thank you, dear friend. Love you too. Thank you, dear listeners for joining us in this episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast. If you are moved by the material discussed here, you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time, remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well. Die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, 
Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. Mm-hmm.